Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. So we have an extra special guest today, an esteemed author, a grandmaster, former top 100 player in the world, author of uh, one of the, two of the most venerable chess columns in the world, including uh, Chess to Enjoy and Chess Life magazine, but most of all, writer of countless books. If I listed all the books that GM Soltis has written, uh, it would be its own podcast. So let's just say many, many books. I'm sure many listeners have read them. Um, most recently, he wrote 365 Chess Master Lessons, Take One Day at a Time to Become a Better Chess Player. And as we will discuss, coming out in the new year, he has a multi-biography called Tal, Petrosian, Spassky, and Korchnoi, a chess multi-biography with 206 games. And I am. it is my great honor to, to introduce Grandmaster Andy Soltis. Mr. Soltis, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Ben. I'm happy to be here. So I've been, as I mentioned to you in an email before we were recording, I had uh, winning with one E4 uh, when I was a teenager, and I actually won some games with one E4 thanks to that book. <laughs> so I want to thank you for that first off. Oh, well, thank you. I, I stopped doing those books for uh, uh, Ken Smith's uh, Chess Digest many, many years ago, but they people still remember them fondly, and some of them people don't like the books at all, but, you know, they kept me busy for a while. Yeah, and how with so many books on your belt, and you're someone who you write biographies, you write sort of historical tomes, and you also write practical uh, books ranging from middle game advice or books about pawn structures to books about openings. So when you finish one book and it's time to start the next one, how do you decide what to write about? 
Uh, well, I usually try to think uh, two moves ahead. Uh, so when I'm researching uh, a book, I'm also researching another book. Um, uh, probably the worst feeling I, I ever have is when I don't have uh, a project to work on. Um, so, for example, now I'm, I'm you know, thinking about another historical book that I'll probably work on next year. Um, I'm working on a, a, a practical book. I don't want to give you the details because, uh, well, it hasn't still in the, the early stages, um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, I, I keep a list of, of possible projects, and uh, it, I let it uh, germinate or marinate, or as my friend uh, John Fedorovich would say, uh, fester, um, <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, you know, when I have some free time, I, I start uh, working on it. Okay. And in terms of uh, free time, do you are you spending all of your time? I mean, between your columns and your books, um, I imagine that keeps you pretty busy. Do you do you do teaching as well? Or what else? Do, what else keeps no, you busy? I, I've, I have never given a chess lesson. Oh, um, and I, you've never I, gotten I, gotten one either, right? No, no, I never gotten one. I, I, I well, I, I do, uh, you know, teach my wife Marcy. Uh, we we look at uh, chess every so often, uh, but I uh, um, I've never been into uh, uh, teaching. Uh, I, I remember Bruce Pandolfini uh, uh, many years ago would would call me up every so often and say, "I got a you know a great student for you," and I'd explain, "Bruce, go away." <laughs> uh, I, I think the last time was when I, I uh, said I did not want to teach Josh Waits. Uh, that's that, funny. That <laughs> I guess he knew not to call you after that. <laughs> yeah, I think we've uh, <laughs> we've come to an accommodation uh, 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 of that. But uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't do anything about chess, but uh, uh, write. And uh, since I retired, uh, in fact, Marcy and I retired on the same day four and a half years ago. Uh, we've uh, done a lot of traveling, um, so that takes up a lot of time. Um, so well, I keep busy. Good for you. And what what did you retire from? I was a reporter and rewrite man, uh, sometimes editor at the New York Post, um, basically since uh, <sighs> since uh, the fall of 1969. Um, and uh, we went through some stormy times in the newspaper business. And I, right now, I'm sort of happy that I'm no longer doing uh, uh, the type of work I, I used to do. But uh, uh, it was. You know, uh, it was fun times when it lasted. Good, yeah, and I'm glad that you were able to leave on your own terms, as a, as you allude to in the newspaper business. Not everyone has has been able to do that in the past. That's decade. right, of course. Um, yeah. So, so where do you do any chess related travel, or is it more just uh, tourism? Oh no, it's just tourism. I mean, I used to <clears throat> when I was much younger. Um, uh, I used to go on the student team uh, tournaments, and uh, I got to places like um, Prague and Dresden, um, Haifa, uh, and and at that time I had not played chess in like Chicago or San Francisco or anything like that. And eventually, I caught up with that in, in playing in uh, foreign tournaments um, and any U.S. tournaments. But um, nowadays, it's uh, I'm just uh, purely a tourist and uh, you know, done some fun things since we retired. Marcy and I rode an elephant in Bali, and we walked under the falls at Niagara. We uh, took the, the night tour at uh, Alcatraz, and uh, uh, we explored the, the the zoo at nighttime in Singapore. We, we've done a, a lot of fun things. This is not Koltanowski's night tour, but the night tour of the prison, oh. right? <laughs> it's sort of a different thing. And then we actually, we some of our, uh, we, uh, we love to cruise, and we've been on cruises to some places that are 
basically prison islands, uh, Devil's Island, for example, or uh, uh, South Andaman Island in the Indian Ocean. So we've got to some really obscure places. And and being uh, sort of a true New Yorker, uh, I've never learned how to drive a car. So <laughs> getting around sometimes is hard. Uh, uh, so we have to rely on uh, cruise ships and other things, uh, other modes of uh, transportation. Yeah, well, in the age of Uber, if you guys have... Um have have uh, figured out that app that things have gotten a little easier. The only time we ever took Uber was in Shanghai, believe it or not. So uh, <laughs> we're sort of twentieth uh, century people trying to make do in the twenty first century. <laughs> okay. Well, do you have any uh, any trips planned for the rest of the year, or are you just uh, hunkering down with your your writing right now? <sighs> Uh, oh, no, we're going to be in Spain <clears throat> sometime late in the year. We're going to go on a uh, cruise to China and Japan coming up. Uh, we, uh, you know, we were just came back from San Francisco. We go to San Francisco every summer because it is at least 15 degrees cooler there than it is in New York where we live. So yeah. uh, and it never got up to 70 while we were there in, you know, in the beginning of August. So that's that's perfect for us. Yeah, I love New York, but the summers can 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 be long. Yes. So you finish. Are so you've you came out with three hundred sixty five chess master lessons um, recently, and is your your multi biography of Tal Petrosian's Pasking Korchnoi is that all done? Is that all done? But it's the all printing? done. I'm waiting to to look at the proofs, um, and that uh, you know it's a, it's a slow process sometimes when you get to these massive books for published for by uh, McFarland, uh, um, Robbie Franklin, who is the the founder of. Uh, uh, McFarlane is also uh, a chess buff, <clears throat> and he. <clears throat> I've been working with him since almost the beginning. Uh, you know, I think the first McFarlane book that I worked on uh, with a guy named uh, Gene McCormick that came out around 1980, um, and uh, Robbie's been a great help uh, throughout all this time, and uh, uh, we're working on that. And uh, maybe we'll do something uh, uh, in the future. And with this many books under your belt, if you come up with an idea, like once you do know what you want to write about next, if you take it to McFarland, do they still say no sometimes, or are you pretty much within the chest dome? I've been an, uh, astonishingly lucky with publishers over the years. Very rarely do they um, they say no. Um, in fact, I've, I never really had much uh, difficulty uh, finding a publisher, uh, usually they come to me. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I graduated from uh, college, it was uh, early uh, 1969, and uh, I had been uh, very busy the previous four years. Um, you know, my main priority, I guess, was working on a college newspaper. My second priority was keeping my grades up because if I didn't, I might get drafted and be sent to Vietnam. That's good uh, motivation. Third, third, yeah, third priority. I, uh, let's see. Oh, I was working uh, as a copy boy one night a week at the New York Post, uh, working a midnight shift. Uh, and chess was the fourth priority. It actually took up the least of my time. But all of a sudden, again, in, in February of 69, I'm out of college, so um, I don't, really don't have that much to do. So I thought, well, there's going to be a world championship match coming up, and this time I think Spassky is going to beat Petrosian. So I thought, okay, how about if I start working on a, on a book of uh, Spassky's games, because there weren't any at that time. And as luck would have it, I mentioned that, uh, that I was doing this. I mentioned it to Ed Edmondson, who was the executive director of the USCF. And Ed was always looking for a new uh, revenue stream for the Federation. And he said, okay, well, how about if we publish it? 
and I, uh, you guys don't publish anything. They said, no, no, that's not a problem. You just, you just type it up. We'll photo offset it. This is in a process that's you know, long forgotten. But they would photo offset it, put a binding around it, and sell it uh, for free. Or not for free, for a couple dollars. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, that was my first book, and eventually it got uh, me in touch with uh, uh, a company called uh, David McKay, which at that time was about the only publisher of chess books in the United States, and they decided to do their own version of that Spassky book, and after that I was sort of off and running. I, I, uh, I did uh, pawn structure chess for McKay and a couple of other books at that time, and uh, you know, one thing led to another. So you you showed good foresight writing about Spassky in advance of uh, of uh, the match. Yeah, I also did a book of course noise games that never got published. So I, I you know you win some and you lose some. Uh, the only so, problem so I what ever hap- published. What happened, what happened with happened? that? Uh, nobody was interested. I couldn't find uh, a market for it. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't Korchnoyan then. Uh, uh, he was okay. sort of an, an unknown unknown player. The only problems I were, ever really had with publishers is over the titles of books because they they sort of jealously guard their uh, control over the titles. And they, they think that if they, they, they get a very general uh, audience to buy it, even a non-chess audience, right. they'll get which is sort of crazy. I remember, in fact, they published a book called uh, Sacrifices in the Sicilian, which was by uh, my old friend David Levy. And it was about the Sicilian defense and, you know, why can you sacrifice a piece on B5 or on F5? And they, they uh, McKay published it, I think, partly because they thought it was a spy novel. <laughs> right. Sacrifices, and it sounded like something by Helen McGuinness. Yeah. Uh, but I, I had that problem, too. I, I wanted to call a book... Um, uh, everything you wanted to know about the end game, but the grandmasters won't tell you. And my publisher just said, it was Bob Long, he said, no, no, that, that, that's not going to work. Uh, so it came out as something like uh, end game secrets, grandma- grandmaster secrets end games. Um, another time I wanted to do a book for uh, uh, Random House, and uh, I wanted to call it uh, How to Win a One End Game, or How to Win a One Game which is an expression that chess players you know, use. They know that the hardest game to win, the hardest positions to win, are the ones that are already won, technically. And you have to go through the winning technique, uh, which is difficult to learn, and there weren't very many books on the subject. Now, the publisher hated the book, hated that title, because what does it mean? How to win the one game? That, that doesn't make any sense. So that it came out as uh, turning advantage into victory in chess, which is about <laughs> as dull as you can imagine. <laughs> right. Yeah, they they seem to always try to take the thread of what you're saying, but then they kind of turn it into non-chessic terms. Which, as you as you alluded to, I mean, you know, good luck recruiting the you know the non-chess player to read a book about how to win a chess game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but in any event, your books do seem to find an audience. So yeah, that's uh, well, I've been sort of lucky like that. I mean, I, I don't have uh, uh, my books don't sell, you know. Uh, 80,000 copies. Uh, I'm not going to... The, the best-selling books, as far as I know, on chess are uh, uh, written by uh, James Eid and uh, Patrick Wolf. And uh, that's uh, Chess for Dummies, and I forget the name of the Wolf book. I think it was Chess for Complete Idiots, something like that. Those are enormous bestsellers. 
Um, my books, you know, they, they, they do well. They stay in print. Pawn Structure Chess has been in print now for more than 40 years, which is uh, you know, pretty good. Um, uh, frankly, I'll tell you, the reason I, I uh, did that book, uh, 365 Chess Master Lessons, was because uh, about three years ago, I was thinking about doing a, a column for Chess Life about Irving Chernev. This is a column that, that only appeared in August of 2018. But when I started thinking about it, I was wondering, why do Chernev's books remain in print all these all these years, whereas Fred Reinfeld's books um, don't? And Reinfeld was a much stronger player. He wrote many more books. But Chernev's books are much more successful. And it occurred to me that the reason is that he was just very good at selecting um, subject matter. He came up with you know great ideas, and one of them was 1,000 best short games of chess. And I think short games are like the, the ideal teaching uh, uh, instrument. So I was trying, well, how could I improve uh, on the, the Chernev idea? And what I came up with was the format that you you see in, in, in the 365, which is you know one game per page uh, with a, a one lesson to explain in that page with uh, you know, quiz, quiz questions for the reader to solve and some supplemental games with the same opening or the same theme. And you know the idea is that you can do this today, you'll do another one tomorrow. And at the end of the day, each day, you can actually feel like you thought you, you learned something. Uh, and that's kind of a, a magical experience because it's really hard to, to you know, feel that you've learned something uh, in a classroom um, that you can use. You know, you could take a, a college class and today you're going to learn all about uh, uh, masculine, feminine, feminine nouns in Spanish. But until you apply it, uh, it's it's just book learning, uh, but in chess you can actually apply what you learn today, tomorrow, in your next game. So that's that's the type of thing that I was aiming for in in three sixty five. Yeah, and it, it is a great format. I mean, the games are very compact. I mean, uh, m- less than twenty moves. And as a as a, someone who does do a lot of chess teaching, we're all, as you mentioned, we're always looking for uh, quick games that we can show. And these are quick games, and some of them are famous, but a lot of them are are more obscure. I mean, like more. Uh, you know, senior master rather than grandmaster level players or people from the U.S. Mm-hmm. circuit. So they're not games that you've just automatically come across. So I definitely recommend it to listeners. Um, getting back to Chernev for a second, I think it was in your Chess to Enjoy column that I learned that he was only, I hadn't known that he wasn't such a strong player. I mean, with a name like Chernev, I just automatically assume he's a grandmaster. So, <laughs> but he was only an expert level player. Is that, uh, is that, that what you wrote? That was my understanding. Um, uh, I, I got a very nice note from uh, uh, I guess his granddaughter um, just recently saying that uh, she and uh, uh, Chernev's son, uh, I think Melvin, who worked worked at uh, Chess Review at one time, uh, uh, and they both enjoyed that. But no, that's true. He uh, he wasn't a very strong player, but he was very avid. He was very interested uh, in in collecting um, the the oddities about chess. He was basically the uh, uh, the Robert J. Ripley of you know. Uh, believe it or not, uh, type information, and he he branched out from that into um, 
other aspects of chess. Um, I think the first book he wrote was with uh, Fred Reinfeld. It was a collaboration. Uh, they, they created their own uh, publishing company called uh, Black Knight Press. And uh, from then, uh, from there on, uh, Chernev came up with these, these wonderful ideas like uh, uh, the most instructive games of chess ever played. Um, and, of course, um, Logical Chess, um, uh, Move by Move, which is, you know, a classic. Um, he came up with formats that everyone has been imitating uh, ever since. Yeah, they they are very original and stand the test of time. I mean, I, st- I still find myself recommending those books to, to newer players and using them if I'm teaching newer players. Um, so getting to your other latest project, your, your um, multi-biography. So how did you decide on these four players, on Tal, Petrosian, Spassky, and Korchnoi? Well, I, I, the idea started uh, when I had finished the book on Botvinga a few years ago, and Robbie Franklin of McFarland said, well, you know, why don't you do another one, do uh, Smith's Law or something like that. And I thought about, um, maybe I should uh, be a little more expansive on this subject. How about uh, a parallel lives type thing, uh, you know, a chess Plutarch thing, where I could do Smyslov and Paul Karras and Sammy Ryshevsky, because they were all contemporaries. But then I thought about, you know, a book like that, the first third of the book is going to be about Ryshevsky as a kid and a prodigy, and, and uh, Smyslov doesn't even figure into the, you know, into it until uh, Ryshevsky's uh, already in his 20s. Uh, or maybe 30s, uh, and this, you know, Karras is playing postal chess when when Ryshevsky's already world famous. So I sort of put that aside, but then I came up with another idea. How about for people who were contemporaries? Um, you know, uh, Petrosian, I guess, was born in 1929, and Tal and Spassky uh, around the beginning of 1937. So they they lived the same the same lives, um, and also these guys had such incredible life experiences that world-class players simply don't have today. Yeah. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, Korchnoi uh, lived through the, the blockade of Leningrad uh, in, uh, during the war. And when he was, I guess, around 11, you know, basically everybody in his family died um, of starvation. He almost died of starvation himself. And uh, he only survived because his uh, uh, his mother-in-law, his stepmother, actually, uh, his stepmother um, uh, worked in a candy factory, <laughs> and that kept him uh, alive. But at one point, uh, his grandmother died, and she needed to be buried. So Korchnoi, again, he's like 11 years old, and his friend uh, take Korchnoi's winter sled, you know, his boyhood sled, they lift his, the body of his grandmother onto the sled, and they drag it through the frozen streets of Leningrad uh, a mile across and across the Neva River so that they can be buried. Somehow I don't, I don't visualize players from the Sinkfield Cup doing that type of stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Or, uh, or Tal. You know, Tal, <laughs> Tal was a, a world-class player. He's one of the five best players in the world when he was addicted to opioids. That's uh, just astonishing to me. He, he was hooked on something called Pantapone. Um, and uh, his uh, wife, Sally, wrote in her memoir about how uh, Mikhail Batvinik uh, wrote her and said, look, we can get 
uh, Tal into a clinic in Moscow to get you know him straightened out. And, and this is very strange because Botvinnik was not that you know that, that chummy with anybody. And uh, Sally showed the letter to uh, to Tal, and you know he Tal being Tal, he he joked about it. He said, ah, "I see you you want to trade husbands. You mm-hmm. want to." Is it really smart to exchange one world ex-world champion for another <laughs> ex-world champion? Um, again, this is these, these people were just uh, amazing personalities, and and very little is known about them uh, about their private lives. And of course, there are a lot of games here. Um, and uh, when I looked over the games, I I, I didn't realize how many uh, of Petrosian's early games he didn't understand how to sacrifice the exchange. Um, today he's famous for the right, exchange yeah. sacrifice, but that's uh, um, and at the Central Chess Club in Moscow there used to be a uh, in one of the uh, men's room lavatories there was a graffiti on the wall that said this is where Petrosian thought up the exchange sacrifice. <laughs> that's their <laughs> Russian funny. humor. Right. Um, so yeah, the, it is true that that especially when it comes to the personal lives, we, a lot of play, people don't know all of these details. So how do you uncover them from from your perch in New York? How are you able to to come to un- uncover all these stories as well as mm-hmm. uh, new games, um, games new to us from the players uh, and stuff like that? Like what what are your research methods? Well, in a lot of cases, it's uh, I'm getting this from um, articles that are written in uh, Russian magazines, in some cases going back to Soviet era, but uh, mainly since uh, uh, 2000. And there, there's a lot of good stuff on the Internet. There's some wonderful uh, Russian-language uh, chess sites like uh, Chess Pro and Chess News RU um, and another one called E3E5 um, that, that uh, people who don't, no Russian, um, and they don't know how to use the Google Translator or the automatic translation button. Um, wouldn't know about, um, and there. Are, this is the type of stuff that um, I I didn't have access to. I wanted to write this book basically twenty years ago, but I wrote the book on Soviet chess instead because it was, you know the material was more available. Um, again, I, something like the uh, the stories about Tal. A lot of them came from. Um, his wife, which is um, surprising, because uh, if you if you know that wonderful book that Tal wrote, The Life and Games of Mikhail Tal, uh, at one point he mentions how he was playing this this decisive game in the first Botvinnik match, where uh, he has a bishop out on g5, uh, Botvinnik attacks it, and Tal defends the bishop with his pawn, which was very controversial at the time, and uh, because it seemed anti-positional and all that. In his notes in, in Tal's book, Tal says, well, you know, I, I could have protected the bishop with my queen, but then we'd trade queens, we'd have a draw, and the big problem for me was whether, whether or not I would get tickets to the theater for my wife and me that night. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's a typical flip remark by Tal, but it was the only time in that book that he mentioned his wife. And they had this incredible uh, love story, and, and oh, it's just they, according to their friends like uh, Mark Taimanov, they would fight, break up, reconcile, fight again. Um, they had uh, their their. I'll give you one, uh, one little anecdote here. Um, at one time, um, 
during, uh, well, again, when Tal is ex-world champion, but he's trying to make a comeback, it's 1964, and... Uh, he was then uh, spending a lot of time in Moscow with one of his girlfriends, who happened to be a movie actress. She also happened to be a KGB agent. Um, weren't weren't had, they all? <laughs> she, she had seduced some French ambassador in one of these classic uh, honey traps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, Tal may or may not have known that. But um, the Communist Party did. And they got very upset about Tal's uh, dalliances, and he was called before the Central Committee. Um, and normally, the the, uh, the problems with Tal and other chess players were handled in the, the government agencies, like the Soviet Chess Federation, or above that in the food chain was the uh, Sports Ministry. It was called the Sports uh, Committee. Um, but in this case, they it was the, the, the Central Committee, which is a big deal. And they said, Comrade Tal, you are a uh, Soviet citizen. You are famous. Even in the West, they're talking about uh, your girlfriend, and you have a choice. You can either dump your girlfriend and reconcile with your wife, or, you know, not, not as quite as good is, is, you know, divorce your wife and marry your girlfriend. And Tal said, uh, just, you know, go away. I'm not going to do that. You have no right to tell me to do this. So <laughs> they, the Central Committee uh, declared him... Uh, or actually it was another agency, declared him, um, I'm going to use a Russian term called Nyevyezny, and basically it means you can't leave the country, which to a Soviet chess player was almost a death sentence because traveling abroad was so important. Um, and the way that he got out of that, uh, according to his wife Sally, uh, was due to his, his mother, Ida. Uh, Ida Tal came up with what, uh, Sally called, not just a brilliant move, but a brilliant combination. Hmm. And here's how it went. The first move, uh, she advised Tal and Sally to go to the government office and register their divorce. The second move is make sure it gets picked up in the, in the Latvian newspapers and is reported to the Central Committee. The third move, he is no longer Nievesny. He goes to Amsterdam to play in the interzonal that you know he would have been barred from doing if, if he was still uh, limited to the Soviet Union. He wins the interzonal, you know, tie for three, three-way tie. And the fourth move, he goes back to Latvia, and he and uh, Sally tear up their divorce agreement, hmm. and they become they they continue having their strange relationship. Um, uh, and again, that that, that comes from uh, Sally's book, which is uh, uh, I, I I can't imagine why it's not been uh, translated. But you know, there are there are many good sources out there for um, uh, Soviet chess history or, or and post-Soviet uh, Soviet era times. So um, that's that's basically my source material there. Um, and some of the old books that were uh, printed in the old days. But, you know, remember, Petrosian never wrote just about anything about himself except for some articles. Uh, Spassky was trained as a journalist. Um, that was his cop-out. That way he, he didn't have to have a, a real profession. Um, he claimed he was a journalist. And, of course, he's, he keeps saying that, you know, okay, I, when, when I die, my memoirs will come out. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that, that he's written it. Um, and uh, Korchnoi, he wrote a couple of uh, different uh, uh, memoirs, um, but um, quite a bit of what he wrote was misleading. Um, and, and as I mentioned, you know, 
Dahl leaves out an awful lot. Uh, 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 you know, autobiography is the art of omission, I think. So uh, you, you really need to get your information from a other source. Wow. Well, I can't wait to read it. So you mentioned <clears throat> in terms of uh, reading Russian writing that these days you can use Google Translate or other translating mechanisms, but I know that you also speak some Russian. So how, how good is your Russian? Uh, it's it's terrible. <laughs> I, can, I can order borscht in a, in a, in a restaurant, uh, and and uh, you know, uh, I still remember some uh, uh, poems that I uh, learned in the eleventh uh, grade. Um, <laughs> I, I I was finishing up in high school, and I didn't want to take another year of Spanish, which I've of course forgotten as well. So I I did I took some some Russian. That was probably the smartest decision I ever made in in high school, um, and. Uh, and uh, my wife, actually, Marcy, speaks uh, much better. She's more of a conversationalist than I am. Um, and I, I basically, you know, read a lot. Um, and uh, every day I, I check out the, the, the Russian language the websites, uh, including their, uh, you know, the Levada Center, which is their, their public opinion polling, uh, the best one in, in, in Russia, and uh, some of the other uh, uh, good sources. Um that's actually one of the the best decisions I ever made was was uh, picking up something in Russian. I, I, we were in uh, San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and I had uh, dinner with an old college, uh, well, high school friend, and I asked him what he's an he was a retired scientist now, and he has all sorts of degrees, including a doctorate. And I asked him what was the the most important classroom experience you ever had? What was the best class you ever had? And he said it was in junior high school when he learned typing. Hmm. Because that's something he's used in his entire life. <laughs> it's, right. you, you really make important decisions and learn things uh, early on in your life that you can you can uh, benefit from. You know, fifty years later. And were you one of the many chess players that studied Russian explicitly because of the chess connection? Uh, I, well, not just explicitly. It, it was something I thought might be useful. Um, yeah, who knows what the, the, the you know the next language. Um, that will be useful. I, I thought, you know, there'd be some opportunities. Maybe I'd, I, I didn't know I was going to go into journalism at that time. I thought, you know, I might end up in the foreign service. Um, and uh, who knows? Uh, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have studied Mandarin um, or Arabic, maybe. Uh, you know, uh, at the time, it seemed like a good decision, and it sort of uh, worked its way out. And do you find your, are there any other languages you've had to wade your way through in the course of your writing? No, I, I, I uh, at one time I was going to thinking about doing a uh, a book about Richard Reddy, and uh, I tried to get through uh, 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 a book on learning uh, Czechoslovakian or Czech, um, and that's sort of embarrassing because my uh, roots are in Slovakia, uh, actually near the Polish border. Um, uh, and I've always I've made several attempts at trying to. Um, learn a bit of German, um, and that's all been a dismal failure. So uh, it's sort of like my experience <clears throat> when I was young and I tried to learn the end game. and every year I would take out um, <laughs> basic chess endings by Reuben Fine, and I would say to myself, okay, this time I'm going to get past move uh, page 30, and uh, never did. I after By the time I was at page 25, I would, I'd just give up and close it, and I'd, next year I'll try again. That, that's why you've written a, a book of uh, miniature games. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my again, I, I, my attention span sometimes is is about as uh, as I, what is very common today. It's it's very short. I mean, that's I think that's the reason why we have world championship matches that last only twelve games, and are over in two weeks, uh, instead of the old days when they were twenty four game matches and they lasted two months. Um, now the Fisher boom would not have happened if if there was a 12 game match that was over in two weeks. It was only because Fisher and Spassky were on the front pages uh, every day, uh, essentially throughout uh, July and August of 1972. Um, and and I think the public did have um, uh, the attention span for that. Uh, I think people you know, who organized chess events. Uh, got it wrong now when they 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 want only these speed events and they only want these short uh, tournaments and uh, because they 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 think that well you know anything longer than the uh, Olympic Games is uh, is something that the public can't deal with and uh, I think the the public does like to follow stuff for that lasts quite a bit longer. Yeah, it's not clear that the chess public I think has an insatiable appetite. But getting back to sort of what we were talking about with uh, with the books that you publish, it's the elusive crossover crowd that you you never know what you want, what they want, and that's sort of that's the group that people are making conjectures about whether whether they're right or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody knows what uh, you know the next uh, the next phase is going to be. I remember that. Uh, in the musical chess, there's something called the Merchandiser's Song, um, which has actually been omitted in the later later versions. I, I think even the Broadway version of the chess. Uh, uh, but in uh, in the Merchandiser's Song, some uh, uh, the line something like, uh, "We've done our market research, and the the data shows that this game of chess will be around a month or so." <laughs> And it goes on to say, it was sort of like, you know, Rubik's Cube, the public loved it, and then they moved on, and, and that's what the merchandisers will do. Yeah, which, thankfully, they've been proven wrong. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the Fisher and Spassky uh, match, of course, uh, which all our listeners are know, know all about. But uh, I couldn't, in my research, it suggested that your, your New York Post column started in 1972. Is that correct? That's right. It, uh, there's an editor um, who um, was a chess fan, and uh, they had, I'd been writing uh, daily reports uh, uh, about the match. And uh, when it was over, uh, one of the editors said, "Look, why don't you, uh, you know, try writing a, uh, um, a chess column and see how that works out? It'll only be appearing once a week, and uh, you know the top editor want to make sure that you know there'll be no foreign trips. You know, you don't have an expense account." He was, uh, you know making sure that there wasn't going to cost them any money. The, well, except for, you know, I took like one, one morning off each week uh, to, write a, to write a column. And uh, well, let's see, another couple of weeks, this will be starting my 47th year in doing that column. That's and, amazing. And in January, I think I'll start my 40th year in chess, in chess life. Okay, so so, uh, so the internet has it right. Seventy nine for your chess to enjoy column in Chess Life, and uh, seventy two for the New York Post. That's just incredible. <laughs> um, I, I'm not Leonard Barden, though. Uh, <laughs> Leonard Barden is still going strong uh, in in Britain, and he's been writing his columns for quite a bit longer than me, and he does a, a top notch job. Yeah, he would be a year. It's quite an. I consider it a, a great feather in my cap to have you as a guest, and he would be another one that I would love to have. So, uh, Leonard, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, uh, send me an email. Um, so, um, 
Were there moments in writing this column for the New York Post where you thought it wouldn't survive? Oh, yeah, there periodically there have been uh, uh, ideas and times when uh, uh, I didn't think it uh, would last. Um, it, it used to be um, uh, appearing, what, what the, the expression was run of the paper, ROP, meaning whenever there is a space in the back of the, uh, the paper, they would find uh, some room for it. And then they decided that that wasn't going to work. And I thought, well, that's, you know, okay, that's the end. But then they decided to put it into a, uh, uh, I think it was on a, a cartoon page, a comic strip page. Um, and it shrank a bit in that, but at least it had a, a regular spot. Uh, and they uh, and they continue that until they get, they got rid of the comics page, and then they found another place. And uh, fortunately, it, it, sur- it survived all these years. I think that's the reason why the well, one of the reasons why the New York Times column died is because um, they simply didn't find a good spot for it. It was competing, uh, you know, for space with uh, real news. And uh, if you have a choice between, you know doing a story about an, an Ebola breakout in Africa or running a chess column, I don't think there's much of a, uh, a choice if you're an editor. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that it has survived. I tried, to, I tried to track some down online, and I didn't have much luck. Do you know, if, I, if one were to want to go through your back catalog for the New York Post, do you know, if, is it behind a paywall, or does one have to go to the library, or how, how could one... No, I, I... I don't. Really, you have to go to the library, I guess, because uh, um, it's not it, it's not run online. Um, yeah, that's which, what I, I thought. Okay. Yeah, I, and the funny thing about a newspaper is that um, unlike a, a bridge column, uh, a chess column is something that uh, is should appeal to advertisers, and the reason is that um, you can read a bridge column and you can play over the the the, uh, the play of the hand just by crossing out the cards. If you if you're a bridge player, and I'm a very bad bridge player, likewise. Um, yeah. uh, but you can take, and then you can throw away the newspaper. You don't need it anymore. But a chess column has to go home you have, because you're not going to play over the game in, in your head. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, that's very valuable because a newspaper that goes that people take home uh, has a multiplier effect. Um, you know, when they they will say, okay, our circulation is one million, but our readership is two and a half million. Meaning mm-hmm. that, you know, it it we take you take this paper home, and it and the husband reads it, and the wife reads it, and and maybe the kid reads it also. Um, so I think that I'm really surprised that that uh, chess columns have have had such a, a, a bad luck over the years. And uh, but you know, mine mine is still fortunately still going strong. Yeah, that's great. Although now, these days, we are sort of in the golden age of chess coverage. Most of it has migrated online. But there's still something about a, a column uh, in a newspaper that, that it has the ability to reach people that that um, you the internet doesn't necessarily. Yeah, uh, I, there are a lot of good sites um, on the internet. And, uh, I, you know, I start uh, each day uh, after my my morning cup of coffee and I watch the news on TV and then I t- turn on the machine and I go through various various sites um, uh, including some Russian sites um, and usually I, uh, that gives me a pretty good idea of, of where things stand I'm just sorry that you know a lot of um, sites aren't updated as often as they they could be um, and you miss out on a lot of stuff and and of course websites die left and right um, <laughs> You know, it's really uh, amazing. There used to be a wonderful site uh, called uh, KasparovChess.com, 
um, and uh, just didn't it didn't last. Um, and that was that succeeded uh, another column, another site that that Gary Kasparov had called uh, uh, Club Kasparov. Um, and uh, well, that one didn't last. So you, and you can't find these anymore online because they uh, they disappeared. Um, and that's that's the the trouble. A lot of uh, information that that used to exist is is gone, and we we lose um, sources of information every day, and that's really a tragedy. Yeah, it is. And yeah, like you mentioned with online, it, it if 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 you didn't preserve it, you may not see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you're reading about uh, chess, among other things, uh, as part of your daily routine. Do you follow, like as we record, the, the Sinkfield Cup ended a couple of days ago. Do you follow events like that closely? The uh, Sinkfield Cup? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, and I, I uh, switch from site to site. I watch uh, the, game, the games uh, unfold on Chess Bomb uh, and also Chess Dom. Uh, to see what the computers are telling me, uh, and sometimes I look at uh, Chess Twenty Four um, to get uh, their take on it. Um, I always find it amusing sometimes when they somebody will be up uh, you know, two pawns, but it's in a bishop is of opposite color endgame, and uh, the computer says it's like a gross, easily won game, and right. you know I know it's going to be a draw. Um, Unfortunately, you know, watching chess online these days is getting uh, sort of boring because, um, well, <laughs> the Berlin defense yeah. is sort of killing pawn to e4, and in, and the Berlin defense is forcing players to play uh, bishop to c4 on the third move. So they're they're playing openings now that were in fashion 120 years ago. Uh, and without any new ideas being added, uh, and everybody's equal after you know twenty moves, it's uh, it's really hard to you know get excited about this. Um, uh, again, if you had in the old days when their world championship matches lasted twenty four games, players took more risk because they knew you know. If I lose today, okay, I, I might come back tomorrow. And uh, like Vasily Smyslov uh, won one of his greatest games against Botvinnik a day after he had gotten crushed by Botvinnik. Um, the the games of the Petrosian-Spassky matches towards the end, they were great like that because Spassky would, would smash Petrosian uh, in 25 moves. And the next day, Petrosian, or the next game, Petrosian would come back, and he'd won a, a strategic masterpiece. Um, uh, th- those were, and, they, and of course, the Kasparov-Karpov match uh, matches. Uh, the same story. Um, today, the 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 danger of losing one game in a uh, in a match of twelve uh, is disastrous. So you, the players are just super cautious, um, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, frankly, if I actually think that uh, the fact that it's going to be a 12-game match between uh, Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana is in Caruana's favor. Uh, if it had been a longer match, well, you know, he has no real match experience, Caruana, and Carlsen is already a veteran of match play. Um, and uh, But in a short match, uh, you know, I, I think Caruana has, has uh, very good chances of winning. Yeah, it seems like Caruana is, um, he's really hitting his peak just at the right moment for this match. So it'll be interesting. Now, I know that that you have lived through and uh, rooted on many world championships. So are you have you been more excited for some than others? Or as a as a chess fan, do you just get sort of amped up for all of them? 
No, there's some that I uh, look forward to uh, more than certainly more than others. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the Karpov Kasparov matches, I think, were the you know the best that I I can recall, uh, at least part of them. Uh, then again, I, I thought the Fisher. Spassky rematch in 1992 was a, a very good match. Uh, the quality of the games was fairly high, um, considering these these guys were you know over the hill. Um, and uh, you know, it's one of the things about the rating system is that it's so uh, inflated that you find um, that players are supposedly reach their peak when they're 40 which is ridiculous. I mean, you know, when was Karpov at his peak? When he was 24 and he became world champion? Or, you know, during the years after that, when he was 34, when he lost the world championship? No, the rating system says he was at his peak when he was 44. Um, same thing with Gadakamsky. He was supposedly at his peak, you know, uh, a few years ago, rather than uh, when he played a world championship match. But in the case of Spassky and Fisher, I think they did play, you know, exceptionally uh, good chess at, at uh, a very late stage. Um, unfortunately, Fisher, you know, was crazy. Yeah, the, quite unfortunately. Uh, Gary Kasparov famously sort of uh, lampooned the the playing level at that match. Do you think he, he had ulterior motives when he said that, or is it just a difference of opinion? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, yeah, remember the context there. Fisher and Spassky rematch was 92. Um, Kasparov was due to play a world championship match in 93. And it looked like Fisher was going to... The Fisher match was for $5 million, which was a right. ridiculous amount yeah. of money. Now, the guy who put up the money was a crook. Uh, but he, he Fisher got, you know got paid off. Uh, Spassky got paid off. They did very well. And then it looked like in 93, uh, uh, there were, uh, Kasparov and his uh, opponent, who turned out to be Nigel Short, would be playing for much less. And Spassky would get more for losing to Fisher than uh, Kasparov would for winning that match. So I think he was sort of, he, he was looking ahead at that time and, and uh, thinking that uh, this is something you know, unfair about this. Um, and then, of course, there was a big, you know, the, the great split in the chess world when uh, Kasparov and Short uh, sort of hijacked the uh, world championship match and uh, played it outside of FIDE. And it took us uh, quite a while to repair that damage. And it wasn't until 2006 there was a reunification match. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, FIDE was not, was not um, a... They were not a beacon of uh, propriety in terms of how they ran their organization, but yeah, when you when you run through the li- list of historical world champions, and when people debate whether Caruana is the first American to play for the world championship since Fisher, or if Gadakamsky is, like stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, is is not really a great, not a pleasant debate to have one way or the other. It would be better if these things were just clear cut. Yeah, I, if, if you're looking for a, a, a silly match, I think the, the Kramnik-Glicko match, uh, which I think of as the Cigar World Championship because it was sponsored by a cigar company, that was <laughs> probably, that was one of the, one of the worst. But again, the, you know, uh, matches in which there's only one or two victories um, in the entire match are, are just, you know, just boring. Um, so <laughs> that's where we stand. So... Y- Reading between the lines, you're looking forward to this this upcoming match, but it's not. 
uh, doesn't rival Kasparov Karpov in terms of uh, your anticipation? No, again, because it's, it's going to be such a short match. Um, I, I have sort of I have great faith uh, in uh, the the seconds for both of these. Uh, they, they have terrific uh, uh, teams of, of trainers. Um, uh, Rustam Kazimchimov, who is uh, the uh, the chief trainer for uh, Caruana, um, he's a kingmaker. Uh, mm-hmm. He he made uh, Vichy Anand world champion. Uh, and then he went on and he started training uh, Sergei Kalyakin. Uh, so this guy has the winning touch, uh, and he, he might be able to, you know, uh, transfer that to uh, to Caruana. And remind uh, remind everybody, Kazimchenov won the FIDE World Championship in one of those uh, uh, knockout tournaments uh, many many years ago. Uh, the one that was in uh, Tripoli, as I recall, infamously in Tripoli. Yeah, very strong player in his own right. And Carlson, I don't know if he has any uh, a trainer per se as as strong, but uh, his t- his team seemed to do right by him um, in in the most recent World Championship against Karyakin. So, yeah, it's not just a you have to have people around you that you can trust uh, and that you can talk to. Um, one of one of the stories that I uncovered one well I read about when I was doing this uh, this book on. Uh, uh, Tal Petrosian, uh, Spassky, and Korchnoi um, was about uh, Rona Petrosian, who was. You know, and the thing is, Petrosian was henpecked. I mean, he he let his wife uh, boss him around, and there was one point in the Botvinnik match when uh, Petrosian was leading. Uh, he was winning the match, but he was so exhausted, and and one day he just said, I, "I'm not I'm not going to the uh, to the match," and she just blew up at him. And Rona Petrosian was about five foot. Well, maybe maybe five foot, um, and but she was like bullying him and saying, you know, you donkey, you lazy bones, <laughs> you're going to that match if I have to drag you, and she basically did drag him uh, <laughs> to the uh, to the match, uh, and and when they the two of them were telling this story to a friend of theirs, uh, who's a, a famous musician who wrote his memoirs, and he recalled this. Um, after she, after Rona was detailing how she had uh, basically forced him to become world champion, um, Petrosian felt embarrassed, and he said, uh, "Rona, uh, don't give away the company secrets." <laughs> <laughs> That's very uh, funny. Yeah, That's great. Um, so. In in preparing for for this interview, I was lucky enough to get a little bit of help. Obviously, I, w- I would I've read some of your books. I would love to read your whole catalog, but we you know we've been planning this for about a week, so I I couldn't do it in a week. Um, <laughs> but I did manage to track down a couple old interviews. So I want to thank uh, Fred Wilson who put us in touch for sending me one of his old interviews with you, and uh, John mm-hmm. Hartman of uh, Chess Life uh, for helping me track down an old interview of yours with. Uh, with John Watson um, and on for the Internet Chess Club, and one thing you said in your interview, I think, with Fred was that uh, at your favorite book of all those that you wrote was uh, the one about Soviet chess. Um, so I wanted to see update that and see if that's still the case. Uh, well, I, I think it probably was until I actually I think this new book. Uh, uh, Tal Petrosian, Spassky, Korchnoi will is is the the one I currently feel is my favorite. Um, but you know, I it, it's you know I love all of my children. I'm of course, gonna, yes, I'm, yes. So I'm no need to disparage any of them. <laughs> yeah, it would be, be terrible if I uh, had to say, uh, okay, this is the best I can do, and uh, and and never. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I very rarely look at my old uh, Chess Life articles. Uh, maybe once, you know, a year when the annual, uh, I get a copy of the annual that collects all of the uh, issues of uh, Chess Life. And I'll go through and look at there. But I, it's like, you know, I hated reading my newspaper articles, non-chess newspaper articles. Um, it, it really, uh, it takes a while before you, you uh, uh, can get used to re- reading your own writing. Um, you know, the, probably the best, the best thing I ever did for the Post when I was a, a reporter, uh, one day they called me in, um, it was a Sunday morning, I remember that, because it was my day off, and Ronald Reagan had died the previous day, and uh, I had done a, an obituary in advance for Reagan 10 years before. You know, newspapers prepare obituaries many, many right. years in advance. And they ran it that day, but they said they wanted to do a, 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 a big spread, about 10, 12 pages with lots of photos, so we want you to, you know, expand on what you did. So I went in and I went in and I, to the office and I said, okay, how many words do you need? And they said, oh, about 5,000. Wow. And I look up at the clock and it's uh, 1.30 and, uh, and deadline is in like five hours. And, um, and, I, and I made the deadline easily. Um, one of my strengths has always been that I'm a fast writer. Um, and, and that's still, I, that piece that I wrote, you know, uh, <laughs> was uh, actually the, the, the best job uh, working under deadline that I've ever done. Um, and I've done a lot of chess columns under deadline to pressure, too. But uh, that's the one that I uh, enjoy the most. It's that uh, time management experience from, from competitive chess coming in handy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, actually, I think there are a lot of things that are to come in handy. Um, uh, I always like the idea that uh, giving simultaneous exhibitions where you would go from uh, board to board helped me in other ways, it helped me in journalism, because one of the things you do in a, in a simul is you immediately have to reset your mind when you get to the next board and rethink what what was I doing last time I was standing in front of this board and it'll come back to you um, and then you have to switch off that part of your brain when you move on to the next board and I did that a lot when I was working uh, as a rewrite man at the post um, because I would I'd be working on a story um, about politics, and but I'm also working on a couple of other stories, and I had to take a call from uh, one of our reporters at police headquarters, and I take his notes, and then I put that aside, and then I go on to something else, and I have to do some captions for uh, some photos that just came in. Um, it's that ability to switch off your thinking from here to there to there and then be able to reset and, and get back into uh, uh, where you were, you know, when you uh, last uh, looked at the stuff. That, when, when I looked at that last time, I was on my uh, computer screen. Uh, that's uh, what I was thinking, and now I can rethink it. Hmm. That's interesting because chess also... People make the opposite argument where, you know, if you're playing classical chess, you're just focused on one thing. So it can be, if you're just playing classical chess, it can be harder to switch, although um, I can see well, how simuls yeah. would, would help you. Oh, sure. Um, and also, uh, when you play uh, a tournament game, you have ability to uh, to concentrate so so much that it you block out a lot of our everything that's happening. I, I remember one time playing in a tournament in Midtown Manhattan, and after the game was over, Marcy said, uh, how could you think with all the uh, fire alarms? 
Hmm. And I said, what fire alarms? And uh, there was a fire truck outside uh, where we were playing, and it, it was making an enormous amount of noise, but I didn't hear it until she mentioned it. Right. Uh, I had just completely screened it out. Yeah, yeah. There, there's many chess players with stories like that. It, it is an incredible thing, the, the, the mind's ability to block out um, distractions. Um, so speaking of your, of your playing days, um, so what do you consider your, your highlights, whether they be like from an actual performance level or just in terms of memories to cherish? Um, hmm, that's, a, that's a hard one. Um, I guess uh, my favorite games were ones that I played uh, in the early 1970s. Um, quite some, I, despite what you may have seen, uh, you know, uh, on the internet and elsewhere, I, I was still playing chess uh, up until uh, I think 2002. Um, but um, my my best games, I, I really enjoyed playing in the student Olympiads um, and uh, against players who uh, that went on to become uh, very strong. Um, Vladimir Tukmakov of the Soviet Union and Gila Sachs of, of Hungary and. Uh, Vitaly Sashkovsky of the Soviet Union. Uh, those are the have Robert Hubner. I, I got crushed by uh, <laughs> in one of those. Um, I, I really enjoyed those those things, and and you know we uh, we actually did win a um, a world championship for the United States in uh, in 1970. Uh, fortunately, we that was because the Soviet bloc countries were boycotting the tournament because it was in, held in Israel, and this was three years after the uh, Six-Day War. But, you know, it was, it was a real world championship, and uh, and we deserved uh, the title. Um, we had a great team. and uh, Ken Rogoff was the, the first board on that team. Uh, and I was uh, second, and I, I think I scored something like, uh, I don't know, eight wins and one draw, and that was it. Uh, so uh, those are my fondest memories. Uh, so you mentioned so the student Olympiad was that what we would consider comparable to like the World Junior now? Uh, I'm not familiar. I'm familiar with the Olympiad, but not the student Olympiad. Oh, these were team tournaments, um, and I think you had to be under the age of 26 um, to to qualify, um, and you didn't actually have to be a student anywhere. Uh, but they were held annually beginning in uh, 1954, I believe, and continued uh, into, the, into the 80s. Um, but eventually they died out, I think in part because um, the players became felt that they were professionals. Uh, and they, they expected to be paid a lot of money to play for their country. Uh, there was one year, um, 1968, where the members of the U.S. team had to pay their own way to get to the, the tournament in a place called Ips, Austria, which actually I cruised past just recently. Huh. Um, uh, but they were they were held uh, on a regular basis. And, and it was very important um, for the Soviets to, to win these. And as I go into in this book uh, uh, coming out in a couple of months, um, they absolutely were under orders, you must win. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, Mark Simonov described this one uh, uh, time when he was called in and said, you have to play in this tournament, you have to win it. And he said, you know, well, uh, how important is it? And uh, he was told, well, the, the orders come from uh, Stalin himself. <laughs> Wow! Uh, he got them. He got the match. So they ended up. And actually, this was one of the the, the things, uh, the tournaments that was when it was sort of a, a student individual tournament. 
and they, the two players that they sent to this tournament were both world-class players, and they were playing guys, their opponents in that, in that tournament were basically 1,900 players. So David Bronstein, who was, you know, number two player in the world at the time, is outrating his opponent by, you know, 600 points uh, hmm. because they were just under absolute instructions. You, you must bring back uh, first prize. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to see those tournaments died out, but, you know, uh, it, it's the professionalization that's taken over chess these days, you know. Yeah, and back in those days, it, it seemed like it was much more common for, for players to just people who became grandmasters, it might happen in their like around the age of 30 or even 35. It was something that you really had to work toward. So whether they were actually peaking in chest strength at that age, I'm not sure, but it was certainly a lot harder to get the titles and climb the ratings. So and something like under age 26 doesn't sound as wouldn't have sounded as silly as it does now when mm-hmm. when we have so many teenagers making grandmasters uh, compared yeah. to the old days. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. I, I find it uh, astonishing that we have uh, a world championship for in some of the, the you know under ten age group, um, and uh, it's uh, you can look at the USCF website uh, and you can find the top players in every uh, boys and girls uh, in each age group, uh, and uh, you see the ratings on them, and they're they're just amazing that the, these kids are are that strong at that early age. Yeah, it's incredible, um, and it and it it seems like the timetable just continues to get get pushed forward. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that hasn't really gotten out to the general public is the way that um, uh, Asian Americans are taking over U.S. chess. Because when you look at those ratings, uh, uh, those rating lists on the U.S. Uh, you know, these kids uh, with uh, Chinese, Indian, uh, Vietnamese surnames actually dominate in like the you know under 12 under 13 under nine um categories and and that's going to be the case for probably the near future i mean i, I can imagine uh we're going to have a an all asian uh, uh u.s olympic team in in 20 years um you know it's like the the 1930s when uh, the u.s team would be composed of of Ryszewski, um Arthur Dake, who was actually Dachowski, he was Polish also. I think Ruben Fine's uh, origins were Polish, so it seemed like the uh, the Polish American team won the world championship, not not in those Olympiads, not not the U.S. team. Well, it's changing again. Uh, we went through a period when um, the offspring of, of Europeans dominated U.S. chess, and then we went through the the, the Soviet period when. So many uh, Soviet emigres came to the United States, um, and now we're seeing another change. Yeah, it, it it is interesting. As a scholastic teacher, I see it just in terms of the interest level, um, the demographics of like the the group classes and after school programs that I teach uh, are, are heavily, um, as you say, uh, Chinese American and Indian American. Yeah, the because they have the excellent uh, uh, educational skills and they have that interest. Um, and, and and the discipline that that seems to be lacking in, in so many other uh, um, and in so many other people uh, in our country, um, you know, it's yeah. uh, instead of becoming uh, uh, doctors and lawyers uh, and and musicians, they'll also be chess players. Yeah, and on the global stage, China and India are also no slouches. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if India is the. The top uh, chess nation uh, by the year 2030. It wouldn't be surprising. 
Yeah, it, it, I, I agree. Um, and so another event that we have coming up, obviously the world championship is most anticipated at all, but uh, of all, but the Olympiad is also coming up. Do you have, did you ever play in the Olympiad and do you have, um, I mean, and are, is it like, is it an event that you track closely? Oh, absolutely, because I, I always like the, the Olympiad because in the first rounds you get these mismatches uh, and they have upsets. Uh, the most likely time to see uh, an upset is going to be in the first round of an Olympiad when you have uh, you know a 300-point mismatch between uh, two players. Um, and it, it does become interesting as, as things unfold. The U.S., of course, is going to be... Um, you know the favorites. We have a uh, again. It's the it's basically uh, uh, the St. Louis Chess Club uh, taking on the rest of the world. <laughs> right. uh, and then uh, yeah, that's a great you know that's a great tribute to uh, what Rex and Gene have been able to do in in uh, in St. Louis. Um, and uh, I, I I hope the United States wins. You know I. Um, what happens in the FIDE election for the new president? I have no idea. That's going to be an interesting. Uh, interesting thing the way that that shakes out uh, yeah yeah that's tough to predict <laughs> um so so mr soltis i just have one or two more topics if you're up for it sure, sure okay great so one is uh if you have any i mean i know that you've played bobby fisher and you knew him a little bit so if you have any stories that come to mind or other chess legends i'm sure you've met your share over the years but our, our listeners love to hear hear stories that that they might not have come across anywhere else Huh. Well, let me think. Fisher, well, I'll tell you, uh, one of my brushes with Fisher, um, uh, I played in um, the New York State Open uh, on Labor Day, uh, the Labor Day weekend of 1963. Um, and in the last round, I ended up uh, being paired with Jimmy Sherwin. And uh, uh, James T. Sherwin was a perennial U.S. championship competitor in the last round. And, and I... I Gave him a good game. It was a very interesting opening, um, which was topical at that time. Um, but um, we were playing at the IBM Country Club, uh, and they had to shut down the, the, the premises. And also, the tournament director forgot to bring a checkbook to the final round, so we had to get into cars and go to his home so we could get our prize money. Wow. Anyway, so I never uh, looked at the game with Jenny afterwards, and I had to get back uh, home to, the, to New York. Uh, but um, the following day, there was some event at the Marshall Chess Club, so I walk in, and uh, Sherwin says, you want to look at the game? And he outrated me by 500 points, so I'm sort of astonished right there. So we go to the back room and at this table, and it's actually the table known as the, the Capablanca table, because... Uh, Capablanca had played there, and in fact, Fisher would later play on that table when he was playing by, you know, by uh, cable with uh, uh, the tournament in Havana when he couldn't get uh, a visa from the State Department. But anyway, we're looking at the game, and Fisher walks in, and he says, you know, and he just takes the the seat in front of us. So I'm looking at Sherwin, Sherwin's looking at me, and Fisher is, is to my right and to Sherwin's left, and he starts analyzing the game with us so how and, was he already world champion or where, where was he in his no, trajectory this is, this is 63 so he's um this is i think he was going he was about to start one of his uh, retirements this is before he pl won the u.s championship uh whatever it was 12 nothing or 13 nothing uh but um he was mm, 
still thinking he was of himself as world champion, and he was right. prepared in, in all sorts of openings. But he was analyzing with us, and uh, uh, Sherwin made the point that he had spent, uh, I think, 30 hours preparing this particular opening. And uh, I guess he sort of regretted that he had to use up his analysis against me. Uh, <laughs> but after every every couple of moves, uh, Fisher would say, "Okay, what do you do on this?" And 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 suggesting an alternative to what I played. And uh, Sherwin would try to find uh, an answer, and and Fisher would demolish it, and you know <laughs> just uh, just flick his fingers very quickly, and and, and this doesn't work, you know. And then uh, and then. Uh, we try to find another way that, that that you know could strengthen Black's play in that game, uh, and Fisher was that's ridiculous. <laughs> At the end of it, he says something like, "And you spent thirty hours on this." <laughs> and- that's very funny. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I I tried to look up online. I had the impression that you'd played him, but the only thing I could find was a blitz game. Yes, that's actually a. a, a a strange thing. Uh, the Manhattan Chess Club used to move every couple of years because, unlike the Marshall, they didn't own They're their building, residence. Yeah. And since they had, they were the Manhattan Chess Club. They had to stay in Manhattan, which you know, which is a bad thing to do if, in terms of the real estate market. So, in the summer of 1971, they were opening their new new headquarters, um, their new quarters on, uh, I guess it was East 55th Street, um, and this was. I think in between when Fisher beat Larson six nothing and when he beat uh, Taiman of six nothing, or it might have <laughs> been after both of those matches. So Fisher was, you know, on a roll, um, and he was invited to be uh, the star of a uh, blitz tournament. It was a, a very impressive blitz tournament at the Manhattan Double Rounds. Uh, I guess twelve players, something like that. Um, and in the first round. Uh, I was paired with Fisher, just as, it, you know, the way it worked out there. And I had White. And the the deal that they made with uh, the photographer from the New York Times was that he could take photos, you know, for that game. And that was it. Otherwise, he couldn't. Um, so there's the Times ran this uh, wonderful photo the following day of me playing Fisher. And I'm about to move. And Fisher's responding. And in back in the background, um, the, the spectators who are watching, they're like, you know, people on top of people, and in the front row, let's see, there was Hans Kmock, who was, uh, you know, the uh, guy who ran the U.S. championship every year. He was the best annotator in the, in the United States. Uh, he was watching this, and Bert Hochberg and his wife uh, were there. Um, and Bert was going to become the editor of Chess, Review, uh, Chess Life, rather. Um, and uh, who else was in? There were a whole story, series of uh, uh, famous uh, people in the New York chess scene at that time. Um, and that's the game. And, and, and of course, I... I was uh, worse out of the opening against Fisher, um, and then he hung his queen. And so I've got, I'm winning Fisher's queen for a rook, and he has some pawns, and he starts pushing them. Uh, and there are no photographs of that part, um, but um, uh, eventually I started making, I was so short on time, I started making illegal moves, which <laughs> is sort of embarrassing to do against Bobby Fisher. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and I eventually lost, um, and and I I knew I was going to lose uh, even after I won his queen. Uh, it was just it's just like a, a sense of uh, his his uh, power was radiating across the board. And then the next game, um, 
he uh, just crushed me. And uh, again, it was an, op- an opening that that uh, was ahead of its time. Uh, with some variation Sicilian, um, but after that, I you know I perked up and I uh, eventually finished second in the tournament to Fisher, and. Um, that okay. That, that could be, I think, you know, my my biggest uh, achievement in chess. Funny thing, when I retired, uh, the New York Post um, gave me a uh, a front page. Uh, this is something that uh, the tradition. Uh, they sort of a mock front page. It looks just like a regular front page, and it's a plaque, but it has a photo of me and playing Fisher. But it's it's not the one that appeared in the Times. They bought a another photo from the times that was never used in the newspaper and it's us fisher and i are, are joking about the game after uh, after it was played um and that's one of my my favorite mementos from chess yeah i should think so that that's an incredible story thank you for for sharing it um okay and last but not least a chess author of your stature um we have a regular feature on this podcast where we we ask them for book recommendations so um Obviously, they should run out and buy our listeners should run out and buy your books. But in addition to that, do you have a favorite author or or books that 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 you recommend to people? No, I don't think there's nothing in particular that that. Uh, I mean, some of the, the the Reinfeld books I really enjoyed. My favorite uh, book when I was uh, uh, starting out was uh, uh, Reinfeld's book on um, on uh, Nimzovich. It was called uh, Hypermodern Chess. Um, that was one of my favorites. Again, uh, anything by uh, Chernov is a winner. Uh, most particularly, uh, the uh, the most instructive games of chess ever played. That that uh, you can't uh, can't go wrong with that. <clears throat> um, let me think. Um, the book that uh, the best book on chess history that I know of. Um, Again, not including my own, but the, the, is the book that uh, two English uh, reporters did on the Fisher Spassky match um, a few years ago. Um, name uh, the name of the book escapes me, but it is really a top-notch job, um, and because they actually did, they went, they interviewed all sorts of people, um, and that's what real you know real research is. People think the chess historians who, who collect footnotes are doing uh doing the ultimate job but this is a case where they they actually got to sources and they they, they did they spoke to henry kissinger about you know, his phone call to fisher and they spoke to you know all of the the soviet people involved in it and of course spassky uh that was a like a, a really good book um but let me think um nothing else uh, occurs to me i'm i'm trying to uh Get rid of some of my uh, my chess books uh, simply because I have too many in my house. How, uh, how many do you think you have? Any guesses? Uh, I oh, well over a thousand. Wow. Um, uh, and uh, and you know, I'm trying to get rid of all of my old magazines as well. Now I've got, you know, I, I don't need uh, chess review annuals because uh, everything's online anyway. Uh, in fact, I, I sold a lot of um, my. Uh, books just recently to fred wilson um so <laughs> he should have uh, marketed them as once owned by andy soltis yeah i don't think that's uh, <laughs> okay well well andy this has been an incredible honor and it, it has not disappointed it was uh, i was looking forward to it and it was great to to hear your perspective and and thanks for sharing all these stories um i'm sure listeners will love it 
Oh, thanks, Ben, because I, I enjoyed being here. So uh, if you want to call me back some other day, uh, we can do it again. That would be awesome. So, yeah, w- that would that would be great. And we look forward to, to um, I mean, we've got your, your current books, but we also look forward to, to the next one. It sounds it sounds incredible. So uh, we, we'll be checking for it. I believe uh, Amazon says like January 2nd, 2019 or something. Is something that... like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I but... know these things can get moved anyway, but in, in that area. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Andy. This this has been great. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. If you like the show, shout it from the hilltops. Tell your friends. Write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform. If you don't like the show, just keep it to yourself. I want to give special thanks to Geert Vandervelt for making the intro music. And of course, I have to thank my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual partners, without whom the show would not be possible. They are Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Krizdwa, Alex Pejas, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Christopher Wood, Coach J's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, I am Christoph Zulicki, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, I am Alec Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jacob Agard, James Bonastia, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katerina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passy, the producer of Perpetual Chess, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankulj, FM Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks again, everyone. I will be back soon with another interview. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.